when you feel really overwhelmed, when, when things get super scary, not only do you not back down, that's the time when you take a stand. And mm -hmm. so it kind of imbued me with some strength. And then it also taught me to wear Doc Martens even in like big corporate meetings and, and feel <laughs> like I can, and feel like I can stand, you know, cause mm -hmm. in as much as I love stilettos, you do not look like you can no. really kick any butt no. in stilettos. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> this is Boss Ladies. Hello, my boss ladies. How are you? I hope you all are doing well in this sort of new-ish normal that we're starting to get back to. So going into the office and, you know, starting to hopefully see people um, a bit more. Today's episode is going to be with Desi Levinson. And to be honest, she was incredible. Um, I just had the most fun conversation ever. I'm recording the intro after I talked to her, but she just like is so interesting and smart and thoughtful and really understands humans and how we think. And she's also so creative, like her, her ability to tell a story about how much she loves storytelling and to understand the human mind and why it's important to overcome fears and, and, and face our fears head on in order to continue growing as people. I mean, it was it was honestly a truly phenomenal and fascinating conversation and has given me a lot to think about personally. So I hope you all feel the same. And with that, you know, I wanted to just tell you a little bit more about her before I bring her on. So Desi is a brand and narrative expert. She's an executive coach. She's the founder of a company called Crate, which she will tell you a lot about. And she's also an investor who thrives at the intersection of psychology, design, and technology. She's a total boss lady and super cool. And I'm so excited for you all to hear this interview. So with that, I introduce you to Desi. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies today. I could not be more excited to have you and, and hear more about your career journey and, and some advice you have for the audience. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited um, ever since speaking to you for that little moment. Um, I've been really looking forward to this. Thank you. Well, why don't you start by, you know, telling us a little bit about your career journey and sort of how you got to where you are now? Um, it's been a windy road. Uh, and one of the things that I always tell people when they ask me this question is uh, narratives always add up in hindsight. They very <laughs> rarely make sense while you're living them. Um, but the one kind of North Star or the one Ariadne's thread that has woven me through um, has definitely been my my obsession with stories. Uh, I grew up really loving books. I'm an only child who was, uh, who grew up with a computer. We had an Apple II since I was three or four. And my dad was a, a physics professor. So I grew up at McMaster's physics lab and their library. And so um, stories were my friends. They were uh, very much kind of how I saw the world, how I tried to make sense of the world. And more importantly, how I tried to make sense of the adults in my life. So narrative and particularly the stories in our heads 
um, and trying to guess the stories in other people's heads was very much what guided me through university from Canada to New York. So I grew up in Canada, moved to New York at, I believe it was around 21, um, became a creative director for quite a while because that's the job you can get to move to New York when you've been obsessed <laughs> with stories. I studied uh, critical theory, psychology, writing um, in university, both for undergraduate and graduate school, and then was creative director for about uh, 10 years. Believe that I was going to help the internet become, you know, kind of the metaverse. We now are talking again about the metaverse um, that it was supposed to be. But at the same time, it didn't fully sit with me very well that I was using kind of the my powers to serve the dark side, uh, using psychology to sell more lip gloss or another pair of shoes to people. And um, I kept trying to move away from that to use narrative and storytelling for something that made, you know, that was more aligned with actually affecting people's lives in a positive way. In around 2012 or 2013, I very accidentally kind of tripped and fell into venture capital. Um, Part of that was because a friend who was raising a fund needed start uh, needed help with their pitch deck and help with their story. So I helped them, and that was successful enough that word got around. Some of their startups needed help. Other funds needed help. And so for a while, I was known as the pitch deck whisperer. Like People came to me with <laughs> their stories, um, I and I would help fix them. I would fix both visually, because I love design, and narratively. And... Um, um, and then that worked well enough that when I met the GPs who started 6405 Ventures, they asked me to stick around. I liked them very much, so I did. And so for about seven years, uh, I was an early stage venture investor, both helping founders with their pitches, but not just pitches for fundraising, their narratives of what they were building, how they were selling it to whomever was buying on the other side, and how they were weaving the narrative of what they were building in the world, because the reason why founders start something is usually because they want to change the world in some way, helping them with that. And in the process of doing that, um, I started kind of coaching unwittingly, um, mm -hmm. helping them with their decks, but also understanding that whenever a deck wasn't adding up, whenever a story wasn't adding up, it was usually because there was some lack of clarity. And, and that wasn't just in which slide goes after what slide. One of the things I've learned now over time is the deck is the least of your problems. Like what goes, <laughs> what bullets you should use or what icons is not what you should be focusing on. Making the story add up making it make sense to you, and then making sure that whoever, whether it's a co-founder or the team you're building, having everyone be in alignment, having them all understand what it is that you know, you're building together. So can I stop you a, for one yeah, second? Absolutely. I want to just stop you on this point because I think it's super fascinating what you're saying. So what's the best place to start when creating that story? Like if you're, you know, if the last part is the deck, where does someone start who wants to tell a good story? I, one of my favorite questions is for the sake of what, which is another mm -hmm. way to say why, but why is so big that focusing it in and saying, okay, but for the sake of what are you doing that? You know, mm -hmm. you have, uh, whether it's, whether it's switching a job, whether it's making a life or career choice, whether it's building a product, 
what is the purpose? And purpose is another one of those really scary words. Um, <laughs> but but asking, you know, what for the sake of what are you doing this? What is the purpose of this next thing, this next step? And starting to prod that. And sometimes people get kind of uncomfortable with this because it becomes, you know, well, it's obvious this needs to exist or we want to we want to grow a unicorn, a decacorn, name it, basically the the we want to be rich. Um, <laughs> but but usually there's something more than that. And so mm-hmm. aligning on that clarity, both internal and external, and and then writing it down. And and these days when I coach, especially founders, I mm-hmm. I actually push them to write me down multiple paragraphs because writing has this way of crystallizing thought and or exposing that you don't really know what it is and you can't hide in sentences and in words. Um, and I think that's one of the things that decks do. Should I continue? Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was perfect. I just wanted to hone in on that because I think it's such an important point. And as you're telling your story, I was like, okay, we need to understand like storytelling and why it's so, so critical. So yeah, you're, you're doing venture capital. How did you get over to Crate and starting Crate? Um, so one of one of the things that was happening at the time, um, if you're if you're a woman in venture, everyone's pitching you mostly lipstick. I mean, um, and and <laughs> you know, direct to consumer products. Um, and I was seeing many actually really exciting direct to consumer products that were really tapping the customization idea. You know, uh, pros doing shampoo that is bespoke that is specifically for you. Um, proven doing skincare that is specifically for you. M.M. LaFleur, one of our investments, really thinking about who you are and how to send you the best clothing for what you want to be in the world. Um, At the same time, wellness was starting to be, you know, a, a pretty prominent trend. And we were getting a lot of pitches for uh, apps and platforms where it feel it felt like for one thing it was fantastic that those things existed however they were very much a one size fits all and so i would i started thinking how come i can get bespoke vitamins and bespoke hair care mm-hmm. etc but there's like what happens in my head human psychology is somehow supposed to be a one size fits all and so for a while i went hunting for a startup. Uh, I was very happy at my job. So I just kept saying, oh, well, I'm looking for a startup that does kind of understands who you are and helps you choose who you want to be and helps you decide on your next steps. And I kept hunting uh, for about a year and obsessing over this idea. And sooner or later, enough really good friends kept pointing out, you know what, you probably should be the one to play with this, to iterate Mm -hmm. with this. and then it wasn't until one of the, in the process of, of teaching founders and working with founders, I started coaching kind of and giving keynotes around story for startups, how to use internal narrative, how to decode internal narrative. And so in early 2019, I taught a masterclass for a company called Declare, uh, which was very much like Chief is now. Um, to about 120 plus women in finance and technology. It was a three session masterclass called Do What Scares You. And it was all about understanding the things that feel most intimidating, uh, mm-hmm. the things that feel most overwhelming and using fear as a weather vane, moving toward the scary thing, not away from it. And 
as I was standing on stage, actually, after that first session um, and the amount of questions that came my way and the overwhelming response, I walked away feeling like a total hypocrite. Like I, I walked away actually feeling like I was going to throw up because Why? there was the adrenaline and the the excitement. And at the same time, the understanding that I myself wasn't fully doing the thing that was kind of nagging at me. Um, and I felt I felt a little bit like a coward. Um, <laughs> and so it was it was really and that sat with me and wouldn't let me go for a while. And I think by kind the like third month moment. Yeah. Well, like a very uncomfortable aha moment, like savor yeah. the irony of standing there telling people that they should really move toward fear and then going, holy, I don't know if I should, I'm not going to swear because then you'll have to edit it out. <laughs> um, but that very much like, oh no. Um, and and then I I didn't let myself off the hook. I sat with that and I was like, okay, you, you cannot not eat your own dog food. You cannot mm -hmm. be teaching people to be brave and not be brave yourself. Um, and so toward the middle of 2019, I made the leap. I, I spoke to the GPs who are still good friends of mine um, and with their blessing kind of set off to build Crate. And so that was that was exciting. And we started on February 1st, 2020. March 13th was the last day of regular normal yep. life pre-COVID. Um, so I joke that like, you know, that Monty Python quote, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, nobody expects a pandemic. Um, <laughs> and so it's been a very interesting and windy road. But through that, uh, building a startup around how to human better, how to contain your emotions, how to understand them has certainly been a blessing in many ways of just coping with everything myself and also has enabled me to coach uh, first just because people whom I had coached and mentored started reaching out and then because that grew and helping people with their fears and through those fears at a time when we're all really scared um, yeah. is, is, I think, has been just um, what I, I'm so lucky basically. I'm so glad to be doing this with my life. You know, I want to talk to you a little bit in a, in a few minutes about facing our fears and, and what that process is like, but I want to start with a little, like a little, getting a little more information from you about Crate because I love on the website, you have this slogan, don't just breathe through the tangles, untangle them. Can you talk us through this and sort of where that message came from? Yeah. Um, I think it was, uh, so much of what we build in the world is what we want to find, what we need mm -hmm. ourselves, I think. Um, and so I grew up in this dichotomy between reason and emotion and seeing them very much as um, as opposites or as, as if there were attention. Um, my dad, whom, as I mentioned, is a physicist, is, you know, super ultra rational. And I grew up very close to him. I'm an only child. So he was my best friend throughout growing up. And he kept teaching me to, that my emotions weren't serving me, that, you know, I just had to reason my way through everything. And if I could just reason my way through everything, everything would be okay. At the same time, I was a writer and a poet and an artist and emotions were my fuel. And so I wanted to understand things with science. And at the same time, I didn't want to let go of my emotions because I felt like I would lose the art. I would lose, I would lose myself. It felt like some kind of a betrayal. And so I really struggled, even though my dad taught me meditation and I, you know, would apply it. It didn't fully work for me. I would breathe 
And yet the deeper kind of whether you see them as issues or narratives, the the things that kind of wake you up in the middle of the night stayed and I couldn't just breathe them out. Mm-hmm. I could make it OK in the moment, but then they would come back. Um, yeah. And and so That's when so I when I found my my way kind of long and windy way back to really understanding emotion now understanding how it works somatically in our body understanding why it's there and how important it is to actually understand and acknowledge it um, I think I now fully believe that emotion and rationality and thought are not separate things if anything emotion actually informs and provokes most of the thoughts that we have most of the narratives that we hold and so being able yes you can breathe the emotion and you can under you can kind of let it go down regulate but then you have to start working on it you have to start turning the puzzle and really begin to understand it otherwise it'll come back It'll come back when you sleep or while you're awake or when you become overwhelmed. Um, And I think it is really not just important. I think this is how we grow. And the resistance that we often experience around those emotions is exactly that same weather vane pushing us to like, there's work to be done here. You're you're not finished. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I loved hearing a little bit more about your background, your story. And and one of the things you had told me is that when you were growing up, you watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that that taught you a lot about your career. Can you share more about that and also the the lessons that you learned from that? Um, yes. So Buffy is certainly kind of the what would Buffy do uh, is something that carried me all through my 30s, I think. Um, I grew up <laughs> I grew up loving, when I was a kid, I loved Pippi Longstocking um, and and Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I, I grew up loving people who were somehow, who saw the world a little bit differently because I think mm-hmm. I, I could um, really relate to that. I was uh, an immigrant in Canada. I was born in Sofia and we moved to Canada when, when Sofia, Bulgaria, not everyone knows where that is, um, <laughs> when, uh, when I was quite young and yet I was just kind of the weird overly analytical kid with lots of books and so finding finding narratives again of individuals who felt stymied by the world in some way and yet did not cower to that that did not did not shrink back but because of because of the situation or because no one else stepped up they had to they had to um, mm-hmm. go save the world from apocalypses the way that Buffy does or save their friends or do the amazing thing. And narratives like that, I am also a tremendous token fan and Middle Earth is kind of my safe place as well. Um, the the idea that that individuals who seem quite normal can find within themselves resources they didn't know they had and that those resources can be unlocked relationally by those who rally around them. So the idea of found family, particularly probably because I was, you know, just, it was me and my two parents and I didn't have a large family. The idea of a found family, the kinds of people who don't abandon you, the kinds of people who go on quests with you or who fight monsters with you um, became extremely important. So back to your question of how has that served me um, at work, 
I think the reality is that I never thought of work versus life. Mm -hmm. I thought of life and how I do big, important things in it. And, uh, and, and to me, that was always how I help humans human better, how I help them with the stories in their heads, how I can relate to them, what, what pain it can relieve, what puzzles it can solve and what pain it can relieve. Um, so, and the other part was, was teaching me that when, when you feel really overwhelmed, when, when things get super scary, um, not only do you not back down, that's the time when you take a stand. And mm-hmm. so I developed this, this, it kind of imbued me with some strength. And then it also taught me to wear Doc Martens, even in like big corporate meetings and, and feel <laughs> like I can, and feel like I can stand, you know, cause mm-hmm. in as much as I love stilettos, you do not look like you can no. really kick anybody no. in stilettos. Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> um, I like the Doc Martens better too. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's amazing. And is, is Buffy the vampire slayer? Is that where you found this passion for storytelling? Like, was that the first captivating no. story for you? No, no. I, um, the first, the first captivating story for me was probably um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read that when I was five. And um, something wow. about Captain Nemo himself, because he was this mysterious figure. Also, the science of like being deep, deep in the, you know, under under the surface of the ocean, having all these mysteries to uncover. Um that was really fascinating. And it was also when I felt most transported places Mm -hmm. like that would take me, would change my experience of the world. Um, The second one that was really formative was that I read Dracula when I was eight and a half, which, you know, I questioned the judgment. I mean, my parents just exposed (laughs) me to all books, which I loved. Like there was nothing forbidden, but um, I read Dracula and became so, excited with that the depth in the darkness mm-hmm. that that pulled me further into storytelling and and then it was just characters and the fact that I mean if whenever people ask me what's what's the superpower you most wish you had it's always telepathy I always want to know what other people were thinking and I mean I'm building an app to know what other people were thinking and and coaching <laughs> and and so on but um yeah, that that has been any narrative that helps you understand what happens in other people's heads. Um, yeah. And then actually Ulysses, I was just telling my daughter about James Joyce and Ulysses mm-hmm. is some of the first experimentation of internal narratives, which I encountered in university. And at the time, I didn't know what, you know, default mode network was or how we how internal chatter goes. So it mm-hmm. took time to make sense of Ulysses. But yeah, I love that. I I love how passionate you are about storytelling and how incorporated or how much how many stories you've incorporated in telling your story. I think it's so, <laughs> so amazing. So I want to dive in more to this idea that we should do what scares us and why mm-hmm. even if something scares us, you think we should do it anyway. So can you elaborate on that? You've touched on it a few times so far. Yeah, I think um I mean, the reality is we've we've evolved as a species to be safe. 
um, mm -hmm. those of us who, uh, and, and we live in this tension um, between the desire to venture out of the proverbial cave, if you will, and gather berries and find a mate and be out into the world mm -hmm. and the desire to not get eaten. And, you know, and those two are in constant tension. Um, the, those of us who serve, I mean, our predecessors who survived are the ones who erred on the side of not getting eaten mm -hmm. and who did the safer thing. So all of us, even to this day, will prioritize fear over pretty much everything else because ultimately that's how we've survived. Understanding that fear is here to serve us is really important because it's not about burying, burying it or denying it. It's about feeling it, which can be quite uncomfortable, but recognizing, okay, this, this is actually feeling not so good in my body right now. And then being able to open up space and choose what to do next. One of my favorite quotes is Viktor Frankl's uh, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, is our choice, um, is our choosing, essentially. Um, I think it's really vital for us to become, and this is what mindfulness in general keeps trying to teach us, is to notice what is happening through our nervous system and then open up space in order to make the next decision, in order to act rather than react. Mm -hmm. um, and so going back to fear, when we feel the fear, the next question to ask is, is this a fear that is trying to protect me? Is this a fear that is regularly serving me because, you know, don't don't stand on the ledge of a tall building, in which case mm -hmm. very legitimate, by all means, move back. <laughs> or, you know, when there's a pandemic, is the fear of going outside a fear I should overcome? Well, not necessarily, not, not if there's, you know, if you're truly unsafe. Um, at the same time, understanding that a fear that saved you before may not be serving you the next day. If you're fully vaccinated, then maybe you know, staying at home and not leaving is not the right thing. Um, and so beginning to kind of explore, is this a fear that's serving me? Or is, is this a fear that I can overcome in order to grow? And mm -hmm. the way that I distinguish between the two is to really notice within your body, whether you can entertain the counterfactual, whether you can entertain the opposite of, you know, of whatever you're trying not to do. So if, um, if I'm afraid about standing at, at, you know, at the edge of a tall building and at the same time I can think about what it would be like, and if there were glass, maybe I can go up to it and actually look over because I know that I'm safe. Generally that's a protective fear. On the other hand, if it is something where I can't even think about doing, like, I can't even hold the narrative of doing that thing, or it makes me so uncomfortable, I want to jump out of my skin, then usually that's a very good compass. That's a very good indicator that there's work to be done there, that that is exactly mm -hmm. what you should be doing, at least in your head, you know, by all means, don't just jump into it. But you should start exploring it. And ideally, you should start exploring it with someone else, whether that's a a loved one, a friend, a coach, a therapist, someone who can hold space and downregulate with you because we're such relational creatures that sometimes we need to borrow each other's calm mm -hmm. um, in order to then explore what would it be like? What would it take for me to be the kind of person who can 
give up I, I get asked about public speaking a lot um, what would it take for me to give a talk or what would it take for me to quit my job and start a company all of those things do you think it gets easier the more you face your fears or does it just continue to always be that same type of feeling and challenge I think it gets it does get easier it doesn't get easy meaning mm -hmm. you still feel fear um you just know what you just know where to put it you know what to do with mm -hmm. it and um i think very much of emotions i picture them in my head like little kids pulling out my sleeve trying to say something to me <laughs> and so i i've learned to very much pay attention to like kind of squat down and go oh you're here thank you what what message do you have and then you can choose what to you, you can choose whether or not you take them on the journey with you or whether you can say thank you very much for trying to protect me but right now we're good we're safe because mm -hmm. so many of the things we hold have served us when we were little have protected us are there in ourselves and in our narratives for a reason but we're not necessarily five or eight or 12 or 20 mm -hmm. anymore and so who we are now is you know, often at least to this audience, an adult with significantly better capabilities, you know, bigger Doc Martens, more, <laughs> more friends and people around us, and we are stronger. And being able to yeah. acknowledge that and shift our narratives that you don't have to be afraid because you, you are strong, you have good weapons. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, this advice I think works in so many aspects of your life, right? Whether it's love, friendship, you know, sports, whatever that thing is that you're afraid of. I think that this is, this is amazing advice. Um, I'm curious, like how you rationalize fear when maybe there's other emotions also, like you said, maybe tugging in your head, like, is there a way that, you know, you have to think about all your emotions or is it really just fear? That's the one that's sort of, worth i don't know pushing on i think at least the way that i tend to see our our emotions tend to be in buckets but mm -hmm. the driving emotions um are not the narratives of fear or happiness or sadness or so on they are the feeling the sensory feeling of constriction shrinking mm -hmm. away which is some form of aversion like something is coming to get me i'm going to shrink back mm -hmm. and some form of open-hearted expansion you know, mm -hmm. moving toward the world, moving to interact and be in relationship with the world, other humans, etc. Um, mm -hmm. I think fear is a good kind of big umbrella term, but fear often manifests, uh, turns into sadness or anger for different people. I've mm -hmm. even seen so much as a gender divide. Most women don't fully know how to feel anger. So we turn sad or we shrink away yeah. and then feel down um and then a lot of men and especially i've noticed this with with male coaching clients ceo types like type a's they don't even acknowledge that they're feeling fear to them it gets expressed as anger they immediately go into the on the offensive because the moment they feel threatened they have to lash back um mm -hmm. and so looking at any intense any highly charged emotion looking mm -hmm. and then going, huh, isn't that interesting? So curiosity is, I think, the best Swiss Army knife for approaching any tense situation, because just by becoming curious, you give yourself perspective. You go, 
isn't that curious that this is happening? How mm -hmm. is it that this is happening? And then from there, opening up space and saying, okay, am I, am I shrinking away? Am I constricting for good reason in order to mm -hmm. feel safe? Or do I want to be the kind of person who will meet this and expand into it because I feel strong enough and because, again, I want to, I hold the narrative that I want to be the kind of person who will lead with an open heart, will lead with vulnerability, mm -hmm. um, will be brave. I mean, Brene Brown's work is extremely um, influential in that way, her daring bravely work, because it's very much about acknowledging vulnerability and then yep. still choosing to step into the arena. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting when you think about sort of like the different levels of fear that we deal with every day, right? There's the, maybe there's a fear of, you know, working in a male dominated space, but every day you have to go up and you, you know, go into the office and you already work in that male dominated space. Then there's like the sub fear of like now once a month, I have to present to executive, let, let's say, and maybe they're mostly male executives that are going to be in that room. Or maybe there's a fear of asking for a raise and advocating for yourself. So with all these layers of fear, are there any different strategies or is, does the strategy stay the same, whether it's more of an easy one that you have to accomplish or you have to do, or if it's, you know, a bigger leap like you were also talking mm -hmm. about? Um, I think that it gets... So to answer your question first, um, I'm not sure that it's different whether that you're negotiating for a raise versus giving a talk versus having a difficult conversation with a loved one or with a mm -hmm. team member. It's it's each one of those can feel like extremely scary thing. Um, the way to approach it, however, I think is to ask yourself to get really clear on what is valued meaning why are you doing this for the sake of what are you doing this and what's at stake yeah. what happens if you don't do this and with like those that. like from from a narrative perspective you then understand if you can hold the stakes and you understand that the stakes are so high that you absolutely must have this conversation about the raise because you either want to support your aging parents or you want to be able to take a particular journey or uh, it is your own sense of self who is mm -hmm. currently being tested because you feel underpaid and undervalued and you need to stand up for yourself. Mm -hmm. So connecting to, you know, that reason, which is worth fighting for, makes it, I think in some ways externalizes it, even when it's not, even when it has to do with something you want. And then it is much easier for us to to go to battle for something we believe in than it is to do it just because it seems like a good idea. If it just seems like a good idea and the thing is really scary, well, never mind. I'll find something else that's fun to do. This is phenomenal advice and and I'm really excited that we that we get to share this on the podcast because I think, you know, you've you've highlighted it's in so many ways, the different powers of storytelling, but also how storytelling is almost part of facing your fears and why it all really comes together and and it takes courage and it's not easy, but that there's such a reward, especially when like you were just saying, you're looking at the things of like, oh, well, if I ask for this raise, then I can maybe live a different lifestyle or support my family mm -hmm. or whatever that thing is. So I think yeah. this is absolutely amazing advice. And I, I'm so grateful that you're coming and sharing it on the podcast. My last question for you is what do you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments? 
Another really favorite quote from Carl Jung is that the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. And so I have tried really hard to live my life as fully as possible so that I can not pass down any unlived life or any baggage. We all pass baggage to our children. That's inevitable. But I've mm -hmm. tried really hard to be the kind of parent who is a, a guardian and a mentor, but who does not force the humans who came into my life to become something that I need to finish. And so, and I think that that's really important in life for mm -hmm. us to all push ourselves, whether it's for our children or through other, for other humans and in other relationships, because we so very often when we're not brave, try mm -hmm. to work out our, our complexes, our dynamics relationally through others. And that yeah. can happen in a loving relationship. It can happen when we lead teams. It can happen with friends to some extent. And it definitely very much happens with children. And so I think we have this really deep responsibility both to ourselves, but very much to those around us to pass as little baggage, mm -hmm. you know, forward and to others. Um, the, I think I often say uh, to the kids that pain is like a hot potato. Nobody wants to be holding it. So people keep throwing it at each other. Um, I think it's really important to resolve our own internal discomfort as best mm -hmm. as we can and or to be as open about it as we can so that we are not throwing it at others uh, consciously or unconsciously. Um, so I think that that ability to be a mindful parent is probably up there. Um, and then hopefully just helping others and, and inspiring them and not just inspiring them, but being there to hold space and be with them as they deal with their own fears. Um, because we're all scared out of our minds at least half the time, probably more than that. And understanding, normalizing that and and also showing bravery while being mm -hmm. afraid is really important because there's this um, misapprehension that people who act bravely are just fearless somehow. I think um, Neil Gaiman says, you know, being brave does not mean not being afraid. It means being really, really scared and mm -hmm. doing the thing anyway. So like pushing yourself to do that is I think something we need. And I mean, right now in the world, actually more than ever, I am, yeah. That was such a beautiful answer. And I'm so grateful for you coming on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Boss Ladies. Thank you so much. And, and thank you to, to your audience, to the people who are all the, the people who identify as boss ladies, as, uh, who are trying to really push forward into the world because we absolutely need to do that, not just for ourselves, but again, for each other and with each other. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Boss Ladies. Check back next week for a new episode. Visit us at www.bossladiespodcast.com for more information about the show or follow us at Boss Ladies Podcast on Instagram. Rate, like, and follow the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Each other and with each other.